Hello and welcome. This is Jonah Steinberg. I'm a Jewish chaplain at Harvard and director of Harvard Hillel, and so glad to welcome you to this conversation about the themes week by week of our Torah readings. And again this time, I am so glad that this truly is a conversation with two wonderful people joining especially for this week, whom I will introduce in a moment. But first to say, as to our reading, that this week our portion of the Torah is titled by its first distinctive Hebrew words, Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. Although mournfully, what is being narrated when our Torah speaks those words is actually Sarah's death at the end of the long and eventful this worldly life of Sarah. So the opening of our reading finds Abraham coming to Hebron to mourn for Sarah and to cry over her, and to secure a tomb for her as his spouse, which we know from our cycle of reading the Torah year after year will eventually become his own gravesite, and that of Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah, Rachel being buried elsewhere along the path of our original family's narrative. Let me take a moment also to mention that Chaye Sarah is the only one of our Torah readings whose title speaks specifically of a woman. And let me say, too, that while the theme of this week's conversation could be bereavement or loss, this is going to be a conversation about love, not only because the reading goes on to narrate the start of the relationship between Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebekah, a relationship that has a fascinatingly loving aspect from the start, as told by the Torah, but our conversation will be about love because our reading opens by telling us of Abraham's tears for Sarah and his care for her in death. Love is strong as death, says the Bible's Song of Songs, and especially this year as we count 240,000 losses of human life in this land alone to the coronavirus as we record this conversation, it really is worth considering how we continue in the face of death to love and cherish. With me for exactly this conversation are Professor Remy Torgauf of Brandeis University, where she teaches Renaissance literature, lyric poetry, religion and literature, Shakespeare, Italian literature and women's writing and co-chairs the Italian study program. Um, especially as our theme is love, I may mention also that this week Harvard Torah becomes Harvard Family Torah in that Professor Targoff is also the spouse of our own Professor Stephen Greenblatt. And together as a literary duo, they have edited a volume of Sir Thomas Brown's writings on his religious life as a physician and on burial. And among Remy's many, many publications, is a book titled Posthumous Love, Eros and the Afterlife in Renaissance England, and also a chapter on facing death uh, in the Cambridge Companion to John Donne. And also with us is Jenna Friedas of Harvard's Lowell House and class of 2022. Jenna is a concentrator in English literature, living in New York City this semester. And I first met Jenna in the online sessions of a course on the Psalms that I taught this past summer along with our Harvard Hillel assistant director, Jamie Drucker. Uh, it was a really special and insightful gathering of readers. And I am so glad that Jenna has agreed to come along for this conversation 
in which we're going to do something a little different because each of us, Professor Targoff and Jenna and I, have brought along a short piece written by someone else on love and death to read aloud and to think about together. A poem in Remy's instance and in Jenna's, and I've brought along a letter. And I may also mention that Jenna and I have been reading an article of Professor Targoff's entitled Mortal Love, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and the Practice of Joint Burial. So let's embark. And Remy, welcome. And let me ask you, first of all, uh, to tell us what you've brought along and to read it for us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was actually a real pleasure to return to Torah this week of all weeks. I found it very grounding. Um, so thank you for giving me that opportunity. Uh, as you just mentioned, Joan, I've actually written a book about poems written mostly by men, but not only, after the death of their beloveds. Um, so I could have chosen one of really, truly almost hundreds of poems. It was a difficult decision. I chose a poem by John Donne called The Relic, and we can talk or not talk about why I've chosen it, but it is about a very peculiar kind of joint burial and a love that continues after death. So shall I go ahead and read it? Please do. Okay, The Relic. When my grave is broke up again, some second guests to entertain, for graves have learned that woman had to be to bore the one abed, and he that digs it, spies a bracelet of bright hair about the bone. Will he not let us alone and think that there a loving couple lies who thought that this device might be some way to make their souls at the last busy day meet at this grave and make a little stay? If this fall in a time or land when misdevotion doth command, then he that digs us up will bring us to the bishop and the king to make us relics. Then thou shalt be a Mary Magdalene, and I a something else thereby. All women shall adore us, and some men. And since at such times miracles are sought, I would that age were by this paper taught what miracles we harmless lovers wrought. First, we loved well and faithfully, yet knew not what we loved nor why. Difference of sex no more we knew, than our guardian angel do. Coming and going, we perchance might kiss, but not between those meals. Our hands never touch the seals, which nature, injured by late law, sets free. These miracles we did. But now, alas, all measure and all language I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was. Thank you. That's wonderful. I, I suppose my first question is, what kind of eternity Dunn's poem is lifting up? Because his own attitude to the notion of a relic in his own imagined grave is somewhat jibing, misdevotion, as to how real lives become how, somehow saint's tales. So if not the relic with its overtone of suspect piety, what is he celebrating? So what's, what's fascinating about this poem, the reason I came to this poem in the end was I was thinking about the ongoing history of Abraham and Sarah's tomb mm -hmm. and how it's been contested uh, over so many, many centuries and what it means to be buried together 
something that began as a gesture of love and marital continuity after death, and then for the tomb to be misinterpreted and to become politicized and so on. And this is the story of Hebron. And so I thought this poem, which in a much more whimsical way, imagines what's going to happen when somebody opens up this tomb and doesn't have the tools any longer to understand the spirit in which it was constructed. So the spirit was, let's find a way to keep our love alive. And what he's actually imagining, and this is what T.S. Eliot thought was the most extraordinary line in all of John Donne, maybe in all of English poetry, a bracelet of bright hair about the bone. What he's imagining is when, when I'm buried, let me have a piece of your hair to tie around the bone so that as he says, on the last day, this device might be a way for us to meet. So when you're coming back to the tomb to get your hair in the resurrection, and I'm being resurrected in my entire body, we will get to meet again. So these relics of our body are a way to make sure our souls ultimately come back on the last day. So it's a very Christian poem, but actually I think the Parsha is interested in resurrection in different ways, or at least in, in continuity. And so um, the misdevotion that he's describing is how people will misinterpret it and treat them as relics treat the thing itself, the object, as the important thing. The object is just a vehicle. Their remains are just a way to make sure their souls get to come together. So you left your hair, I left a bone, and that means on that crazy traffic jam of the apocalypse, which is how Don imagines it, um, we will once again meet. So anyway, there are a lot of different ways in which I thought this, uh, this resonated, but it's a gesture like Abraham's of trying to ensure some future in the face of loss. And as that something else in his imagination yeah. becomes, becomes something else to someone else yeah. down the line, I'm not sure I always like these kinds of historical speculations, but do we have any notion, Remy, of whose hair it would have been, who, <laughs> who Don might well, be referencing? Yeah, I mean, luckily in this case, we, we actually almost certainly do because Dunn had a passionate love for his wife and wrote her, wrote her epitaph, which is another text I could have brought to this conversation. Um, he wrote lots of poems to her. He actually stopped writing love poetry altogether after her death, which was also when he became a priest in the Church of England. So these are sort of overlapping things, but he said goodbye to love poetry and began writing holy sonnets after his wife died. So this is almost certainly his wife named Anne Moore. Her maiden name was Anne Moore. She was actually a relation of Sir Thomas Moore. And he, he wrote many, many poems to her. He doesn't name her, but it's almost certainly she whom he's writing about. And if it is she, and Jenna, I want to bring you into this conversation too, but, but first, Remy, if it is she, what do we make of the scant difference of sex they, they knew uh, and not between those meals? <laughs> I think he's being mischievous and okay. playful, um, which is very typical of him. And he, 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 what we don't know, Joan, is when he wrote this poem. So if we get into the weeds of his biography, it's likely he wrote this poem before they were married, but once he was already in love with her. So he's saying we were innocent. We deserve sort of saint-like recognition for not, not touching, not doing anything uh, that we shouldn't have done in between meals. But the level of... Um, 
of love and admiration that comes out in that last couplet, all measure and all language, I should pass, should I tell what a miracle she was? All of a sudden, he goes from kidding around about miracles to being dead serious. And the dead seriousness is that this woman was, was a miracle in his eyes, that she was, she was the Sarah to his, to his Abraham, the, the Rebecca to his Isaac. Wonderful. So Jenna, let's turn to you. And, and uh, if you want to start by reflecting on what we've just heard, and then perhaps tell us what you've brought along and read it for us also. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think this idea of um, relics or just something from the past that's carried out into the present and future um, resonates a lot with, with Abraham and Sarah being the, the mother and father of um, the entire Israel um, and not just Israel, but um, many other descendants who, who would, I guess, the, the Muslim um, generation, but we, they wouldn't have called it that in the time that the Torah was written. Uh, I think that's really interesting. And also how somehow um, this death, this scene of death and, and the graveyard has brought up more thoughts of love and of connection. Um, I think that's really interesting. Um, and I think my poem does something similar. If you want to comment on that or if I should go ahead and share. Go ahead. Tell us, what you, tell us what you have. Um, so I've brought um, W.H. Auden's Funeral Blues. Actually was not. A, a difficult decision for me um, because I was um, contemplating on on this and this poem just came to my mind kind of suddenly in the middle of the day um, and it's something I've heard read aloud um, many times and it's it's um, has always made me emotional um, so I'll, I'll go ahead and read it um, funeral blues stop all the clocks cut off the telephone Prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum, bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplane circle moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message he is dead. Put crepe bows round the white necks of the public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west my working week and my Sunday rest, my noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong. The stars are not wanted now, put out everyone, pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood for nothing now can ever come to any good. Jenna, what real, first of all, thank you. And, and what, what really strikes me when you share this poem that probably the largest number of people know from its appearance in that film, Four Weddings and a <laughs> Funeral, uh, but when you share it as a companion or counterpoint piece to our Torah reading, I, I think of how this poem's theme of finality and loss in effect echoes the way in which Abraham's mourning of Sarah becomes a story about staking out a place and even a home ground and an emblematic narrative that continues in some ways, to, as you've said, to orient a whole people and even several peoples. Um, so Auden captures the moment of grief so well with his almost childlike impulse to knock over all the toys. And, and there's a bit of Dunn-like jibing in it also. And yet, 
it's also a poem about a deep commitment, setting a, a guiding pole star in the firmament, so to speak. So I wonder, Jenna, what you think about what is lost in this poem and what's found. Yeah, I mean, it, it just demonstrates to me that this person for the speaker was life, basically. And, and that's what Sarah is. Um, when um, two weeks ago, we read the, the Parsha where God changed Sarah's name from Sarai, signifying that, that she was not just like a, a princess or an important woman, but, but the mother of, of all of the Jewish people. And there's something about that, you know, this person was his whole week and his, all of his rest and, and everything in the world. Um, that really struck me. And I think the, the finality is um, a good contrast to, to the Parsha and to Dunn's poem as well, because we, we know that based on this poem's existence and the speaker um, uttering it in um, the memories and, and the clear love that we see, that, that there is not a finality to this person's life. Yeah, I was thinking about that as you read out, I thought that love would last forever. I was wrong, which the poem in its way testifies against. Um, so let me put another piece on our reading table together, and then and then we can put these three pieces in conversation with the with the three of us. Um, what I've brought along is a letter, a love letter, which uh, the late physicist Richard Feynman wrote or Feynman wrote to his deceased wife uh, two years after her death. She died of tuberculosis in Albuquerque while Feynman was working in Los Alamos on the Manhattan Project. Um, you can hear him, by the way, in a talk called Los Alamos from Below that you can find online talking about the antics they got up to in their correspondence with each other in defiance of the, of the censorship and the uh, the amazing relationship they had with one another at a distance uh, toward the end of her life. And the letter was found in a box decades later among Feynman's possessions after his own death. I've actually never read this aloud before, so we will see if I can get through it without, without crying. October 17th, 1946. Darlene, I adore you, sweetheart. I know how much you like to hear that, but I don't only write it because you like it, I write it because it makes me warm all over inside to write it to you. It is such a terribly long time since I last wrote to you, almost two years, but I know you'll excuse me because you understand how I am, stubborn and realistic, and I thought there was no sense to writing. But now I know, my darling wife, that it is right to do what I have delayed in doing, and that I have done so much in the past. I want to tell you, I love you. I want to love you. I always will love you. I find it hard to understand in my mind what it means to love you after you are dead, but I still want to comfort and take care of you, and I want you to love me and care for me. I want to have problems to discuss with you. I want to do little projects with you. I never thought until just now that we can do that. What should we do? We started to learn to make clothes together or learn Chinese or getting a movie projector. Can't I do something now? No, I am alone without you. And you were the idea woman and general instigator of all our wild adventures. 
when you were sick, you worried because you could not give me something that you wanted to and thought I needed. You needn't have worried. Just as I told you then, there was no real need because I loved you in so many ways so much. And now it is clearly even more true. You can give me nothing now, yet I love you so that you stand in the way of my loving anyone else. But I want you to stand there. You dead are so much better than anyone else alive. I know you will assure me that I am foolish and that you want me to have full happiness and don't want to be in my way. I'll bet you're surprised that I don't even have a girlfriend, except you, sweetheart, after two years. But you can't help it, darling, nor can I. I don't understand it, for I've met many girls and very nice ones, and I don't want to, wait to remain alone. But in two or three meetings, they all seem ashes. You only are left to me. You are real. My darling wife, I do adore you. I love my wife. My wife is dead. Rich. P.S. Please excuse my not mailing this, but I don't know your new address. Um, so it's in some ways a far cry from John Donne or Shakespeare or Auden's poetry, but I wonder, um, Ramey, as a professor of literature, how it strikes you. Yeah, it's a beautiful, when you first sent this, I found it so moving. And I, I think if each time one reads it, it actually somehow gets deeper and more, and more moving, which is interesting, uh, which speaks to the fact that it must have something very powerfully going for it, literarily as well as just emotionally. There's something about the cadences, I think about the present tense that continues through it, um, that he refuses to shift tense. I think that that's extraordinary. Um, the ongoing conversation, the refusal, the stubbornness, the refusal to let go. I love, and I think it's very Dunnian, in fact, the sentence about the ashes, that it's the other women who are alive who turn to ashes, that she's the one who re retains vitality. And then this just desperate, poignant, probably pointless project of trying to keep open a conversation that's been closed. And that's something actually that Abraham really doesn't do, or we don't see Abraham doing. Um, the the Parsha is very practical in a way that this letter isn't. You know, I mean, it's very much about making, to, to, to bring up something that's going on right now, it's about a peaceful transition, um, right? A transition from, you know, so we're going to bury Sarah and we're going to do that in the right way. And there's no liturgy yet. And so we're not sure what the rules are, but we're going to pay for the land so that we know there's no contest. And then the minute Sarah is buried, we're not going to find another girlfriend or that might happen, but we're actually going to make sure that Isaac finally gets married. And, and, and so, you know, I mean, from a Freudian perspective, I find it so interesting, the, the, the fact that Isaac really seems not able to get married until his mother dies, that, you know, there, that one woman needs to replace the other in his, I mean, that, that extraordinary um, line, you know, that Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebecca, and she, this is the King James, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. I mean, there's a direct relationship between these things. So that's the replacement. It's the next generation. It's the future. 
it's not Abraham, but it's his, it's his son and his progeny. So anyway, those are some of my initial thoughts. Yeah, and, and, and eventually, too, it's Abraham being gathered into his ancestors at the end of his life, which we know will be being buried in, in that place. And to Jacob, even in Egypt, will want to have his bones brought back to that home ground and, and, and buried there. And, and Jenna, I wonder if I can ask you in some way that I hope will not sound condescending as, as, the, as the young person in this conversation with, or the youngest person in this conversation with, with, with so much ahead of you, we pray, what do you think of all these finalities? And, and a question to you about whether memorializing seems to be about stopping or about starting something. Yeah, well, I, I am a young person and just an English student. Um, but I think in, in all the pieces, we, we see aspects of both um, finality and um, a continuation of, of some sort of love um, through memory. I think all of them specifically, um, um, not, not as much the, the actual Torah portion, but um, these other pieces um, emphasize how these two people are, are meant to be together and are forever connected. And in what's interesting to me, and one of the reasons actually I, I did choose Funeral Blues, is that it is a homosexual relationship. And um, that's a, a stark contrast from Abraham and Sarah's relationship where they, they are the mother and father of generations and an entire people. So there's something there um, it's maybe, um, I mean, that conversation could last an hour probably in and of itself would that there, there is no progeny here in, in funeral blues. Um, and maybe that's, that has something to do with its finality, although I don't think that's what Autumn was, was specifically thinking, but it doesn't really matter. Um, and I think um, in, in, these other, in these other pieces, there definitely would, would be some, some idea about progeny or is there something about a relationship between a man and a woman that feels like um, that there's more of a memorializing of it, as there certainly is with Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, and different from from Auden's time, and just the the differences we've lived through in recent recollection, where now these you know different sanctioned loving relationships figure out how to how to carry forward progeny of their own kind in the world and. Uh, and children, whether from whether from past relationships or one they or ones they adopt, but thinking thinking of Auden sort of spiritually adopting us as as legacy and bringing into bringing us into the intimacy of that relationship, I hadn't thought of it in a parental way, um, but it's interesting to think of how that poem then parents us as to modeling a love. Um, that, that's a that's a powerful that's a powerful notion you know with the Feynman letter there's something that that almost blink and you can miss it at the very beginning of our Torah reading which the scripture says that Abraham came to Hebron to cry over Sarah and to bury her so he wasn't there perhaps he wasn't there when she died you know, and, and Midrash suggests, well, he was off doing the, the binding of Isaac yeah. thing, and it was yeah. at some, you know, half revelation of that to Sarah that she died in, yeah. in despair, and perhaps they died in an alienated 
state from one another, which, which would make his crying over her and finding a resting place for both of them together all, all the more poignant. And, and Professor Targoff, I hadn't thought of that busy day in terms of the traffic of the apocalypse that you, that you mentioned and the, and, the, and the band of hair in the Dunn poem being almost a, a clever, um, especially, if, especially if Dunn was among those who didn't believe that romantic love would persist beyond the resurrection to kind of cheatingly almost uh, get in a moment with his spouse before embarking on whatever blissful, yeah. you know, post, uh, po you know, post-spousal existence they would have uh, in his conception beyond the, beyond the resurrection. I mean, I guess the question that all the poems are asking or all these pieces is, you know, what remains on the other side? You know, what, what's left? And in a, religious context, there can be lots of things that one can imagine, um, whether it's, it's keeping the faith and the progeny and the, and the passing God's word on, or whether it's an actual reunion in heaven, which would actually be a Catholic solution. And that's what Petrarch and Dante imagine very vividly. And what sadly for English Protestants got taken away from them. Um, so, you know, Calvin says, you know, there can be no reunion of spouses because we have to be focused on God and, and on Christ. So, so there's a religious hope um, of, of something, but it depends on which denomination we are, what faith. But what's interesting, if we just think about the Auden poem and the Dunn poem now pairing them, another thing that lasts is, is the poem. And this is something that Dunn says beautifully in a different poem, a famous, another famous poem, uh, the canonization, where he says, you know, that we'll build, that what will be left of us, he says, um, and if no piece of chronicle we prove, if we're not worthy of the history chronicles, if we're not worthy of the Bible, we'll build in sonnets pretty rooms, as well a well-wrought urn becomes the greatest ashes as half-acre tombs, and by these hymns all shall prove us canonized for love. And again, that phrase, the well-wrought urn, was the beginning of the new criticism. That's the phrase that Cleanth Brooks launched to talk about the poem as a crafted artifact, as an urn. But what Dunn is imagining here is we will make our future, the future of our love, will live in the sonnet, right? We'll live in the poem. And I think, as I think you said, Joan, I mean, the Auden poem is so poignant because he says love is over and this is dead, but we're reading his poem and it's honoring this love. And so there's a way in which the poem is the urn. That's what Dunn says. The poem is the place you put the love and the feelings and all the complicated ambivalence that, that is going on. So, so I, think, I think it's almost impossible to cut off entirely the possibility of some future for love. Um, we haven't mentioned, and I just, we only have a few minutes, barely, but I think it's also so important that this Parsha also includes the first use, if I'm not mistaken, of the verb to love um, in, in, in the Torah, uh, to love between two people. And it's, it's, it's Isaac who, who loves his new bride. Yeah, and, she, so, and she's bowled off her camel at the sight of him. Falls <laughs> off, right? She falls off her camel. I know that I read a little bit about that Hebrew verb, watipa. Yes, and yes. It, it, she fell or she leaps. Yeah, I, I think the King James does alighted, which is a little more, a little more graceful. But, you know, in the Hebrew, she fell off that darn thing. Yeah. But, um, but, you know, I looked it up and the other only time in 
it's in Second Samuel, the next and only other use, and uh, I think in the Hebrew Bible, that the son of David loved her. And, you know, so we have the introduction of, of the verb to love in this Parsha, in which, yeah. you know, Sarah lived as the, and begins and Sarah died. So I think that's also important. Yeah. And, and, and Jenna, I, I wonder, um, as you hear that, and thinking again of the Auden poem that you've brought along, the way in which, um, now I can't remember if this is actually from Shakespeare or from Tom Stoppard's screenplay of Shakespeare <laughs> in love, you know, ungovernable, unbidden, like a fire in the heart. The, the way in which, you know, all of these poems tend to a bit of transgressiveness and, 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 you know, Feynman's stubbornness, he was not a theological person. It's a scientific stubbornness. He's doing something irrational. So for him, that's kind of transgressive. Dunn is poking fun at relics, which, okay, anti-Catholic, but he's also, he's being sportive around death, which is, which is wonderfully irreverent. And, uh, and, and in the Auden poems with the, the crepe bows around the public doves and so forth, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a send-up of British funerary ritual. Um, and so I wonder, Jenna, what you think about the, about the mischievousness that, that runs, happens to run as a theme through, through the three pieces we've brought along. Yeah, I, so I wasn't going to bring this up because I, I like to discuss this poem without thinking about this, but, but um, it was originally written as a satire about a, a British politician's death, and it was changed afterwards and I think he did mean it to become more of a, a, real, um, a real sad poem, but it makes everyone cry. It's, I mean, it's used in this movie at this funeral that's everyone thinks is the, the saddest, most emotional part of, the, of that film. And, but but it, there, it was born in satire. So it's, it's very interesting to me. I think it's more of a, if we're going to look at it with without that that historical um, knowledge, it seems to me like this knee jerk reaction to the emotions that are being felt is to say stop everything, including these small things like the dog with the bone. Stop everything, and then these really big things. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. I mean, it's like stop everything. I I don't know what else to do except to say stop the world without this person. But this is probably without um, having really thought about it or reflected on, on the death and the life. So as you said, we could go on for, for hours on this, and I, and I actually hope in some context we get to, but let's, let's leave it there for now. Um, with the question of whether memorializing is about stopping or going on, and I think perhaps we've, we've approached a, a, a pretty definitive answer to that in this, in this conversation. I, I think the three selections and the ways they've become touchstones to us personally give us some answer to that question. Uh, but perhaps it is so poignant because in some ways it remains a question. I, I'm so grateful to both of you for being willing to open the book and these books together. Uh, and it's tremendous to see both of you and, and thank you. Thank you so much, Jenna. It was lovely to, to have a chance to talk to you. And, and Jonah, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. I'd love to spend another hour talking about it. Had we but world enough and time. Yeah. as far as but world enough and time. <laughs> <laughs> we could, we could, but I will look forward to future 
future conversations. Indeed. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. Thank you both so much. Bye.